Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham. Thank you, JJ, for that introduction, and I also want to thank all my listeners from around the world. Never, ever give up hope now has listeners in 47 different countries, and we are absolutely thrilled about that. The message is the same no matter where we live. Everyone needs to be encouraged and uplifted with stories of hope, and each one of my guests shares their story of never giving up of pure tenacity and perseverance and hanging on to hope. I appreciate each one of you listeners. And when you leave your comments and your reviews, it means a great deal to me personally and, of course, for the uh, show's success. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much. With me today is Stephanie Collins. Stephanie is an author of a novel based on her memoir, entitled With Angels' Wings, and has degrees in both psychology and nursing. But Stephanie, in the blink of an eye, went from being a young woman wrestling with a temperamental marriage to a single mother of four special needs children. Welcome, Stephanie. Hi, thank you very much for having me. I think that as soon as you say special needs children, everybody's heart just skips a beat. And it's one thing to have one child, but you are definitely unique in that you have four. And I know you're going to have a lot to share and a lot of encouragement for people who have had to meet these challenges. So thank you, Stephanie, for uh, off. I know we had a real hard time getting together. It seems like our schedules have been uh, very crazy, and it's, so it's a real pleasure that we finally do get to, to sit and chat, and I look forward to it. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, me too. <laughs> All right, so let's start with what was your like, sorry, what was your life like before children? In other words, what were your career goals as a young woman? Mm-hmm. Um, to be honest, it's hard to remember life before kids. <laughs> um <laughs> I mean, it just uh, the the fact that 23 years has passed, but but also uh, life with kids is just so entirely different from life without kids that it's um, it's hard to remember. And and I started young. Um, I think I had just turned 21 when my oldest was born. So when you say what were your goals and what were you like back then? Well, in a lot of ways, I was just still a kid, and I don't think I really knew what I wanted. Um, I had a rather chaotic upbringing uh, with divorced parents, and um, 
just all sorts of drama going on. And so decisions that I made at that point in my life, I think, um, I think we're at least partially due to, uh, to to those circumstances. I went to college and got my degree in psychology, but um, I didn't really have a plan to use that. To be honest, I just uh, I dreamed of being a, a housewife and a mother. That's what I wanted to be. How interesting! It's come full circle then. It has, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what about your nursing? What did you do with that? Well, that came after kids, and um, so I guess I should uh, back up and, and start with uh, when my first child came along. Okay. So um, I had dated um, a guy named Kevin in high school, and uh, and I had friends of the family who um, were high school sweethearts, and they got married, and they were just living the dream life in my eyes. Uh, I just – I wanted to be them. Mm. And so I was dating Kevin, and he went into the Marines, and um, and we decided to get married, and and <laughs> we both decided for the wrong reasons to get married. Um, my reasons, I guess I shouldn't really speak for him, but my reasons was just because I wanted to be the the wife in the house, uh, the, the 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 wife and the mother. So. Um, of course, I should have checked with him first. He didn't. He didn't want kids. Oh no! <laughs> so I guess yeah. A couple of discussions you should clearly have before marriage are you know how many kids you want and uh, what your religion. A couple of those basics. Exactly. So we got married very young. Uh, he was um, he was eighteen or nineteen. I was nineteen or twenty, and uh, and my first daughter Emily showed up a year later, um, or yeah, about a year later. And um, he was stationed in California at the time. We're both from northern New Hampshire. We were in California. I had no family out there, and I was completely overwhelmed. Um, with with motherhood um i had no experience before that you know so even just changing diapers was was all new to me and uh and emily was colicky and um you know i I said in the um in the prologue in the book that people told me oh when you're a parent you won't have as much time to yourself and i thought okay I, i can handle not much time and i interpreted that as you know, I won't be able to get my nails done. I, I can handle that. But, you know, as I'm crying on the bed thinking, no one told me that I wouldn't be able to go pee when I have to go pee, <laughs> you know. And privacy, forget oh, that. Yeah, forget privacy. <laughs> so um, so that was a, a bit of a challenge. And it was more, ch- and the challenge was increased by the fact that um, Kevin and I were not working out Um it, it was just it was a it was a marriage that would it never should have been. We were too young. We got married for the wrong reasons, and and the marriage was just barely hold, holding on. So um, he had he had to go out to sea. Um, of course, he was a marine. He, he had to go out on deployment, and that was great for us because we always did better when we were you know half a world apart. <laughs> and so I flew back to New Hampshire um, to and and I had gotten pregnant with my second child. Um, and I flew back to New Hampshire to have both the girls, uh, there. And, um, so I, uh, so Kevin was off the coast of Saudi Arabia and, um, Emily was uh, just about to turn three and I gave birth to my second daughter, Hannah. And, uh, everything, 
everyone told me that everything was great, but nothing felt great. Mm. And so lesson number one to anyone listening is listen to your gut. You know, when you have that little voice inside saying something's wrong here, mm-hmm. listen to that because you know that something's wrong. And uh, in our case, and so uh, my first clue that something really wasn't right was uh, Hannah seemed to refuse to eat. She knew how to latch on, but she just wouldn't. And so I tried, you know, every bottle nipple made to, you know, made in the world. I I, I tried every position with with nursing I tried everything and she just she would take a sip or two and then she'd turn her head away and um and she was also very very small um uh my oldest was eight pounds two ounces when she was born and Hannah was just five pounds ten ounces and everyone said oh you know sometimes they're just small but it just didn't seem right to me and the fact that she was so small and then not eating I was just really concerned that she didn't really have much uh, wiggle room there, that she needed that nutrition. So um, it it grew to a boiling point um, on Labor Day. Uh, So, of course, everything is closed, and we're in a little tiny town in northern New Hampshire. And I called the pediatrician at home because it's a little tiny town in New Hampshire. <laughs> I called him at home that morning and I said, I'm really sorry to bother you. but um, And I know that we have our first well baby checkup in a few days, but I'm really concerned because she's not eating. And I'm concerned that she's going to get dehydrated. And he said, meet me in the office in a half hour. Mm. So I turned to Hannah and I said, okay, I'm going to take her in. And when I get back, we'll clean up these uh, breakfast dishes and we'll go to the park. So I took her to the uh, pediatrician, and uh, the first thing he did, of course, uh, what doctors do, he put the stethoscope on her chest, and he said, "Uh uh-oh. Oh, no. We have a problem here. And my first thought was, wait a minute. No, no, no. The problem's her stomach. Yeah. (laughs) What are you talking about? There's no problem yet. So he said, I'm hearing a substantial murmur. And, uh, and of course, then I'm trying to think, murmur, murmur. I, I know I've heard that word, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I don't want to look stupid by asking. And so um, so he sends me to the emergency room with her for further testing. And uh, he met us over there. And, of course, all the tests came back abnormal. And, um, and he said, well, in the office, he had said uh, she probably just has a hole in her heart. This happens all the time. Luckily, we live in a very – a uh, good part of the world for this. Uh, we have Boston Children's Hospital right down the road, and they uh, they perform surgeries on on children the size of Hannah or even smaller every day. So this shouldn't be. And I thought, okay, well, all right, let's mm-hmm. let's get this fixed. Okay, this done. Um, so he came over to the emergency room, and uh, and he was looking over the the test results. And I remember him standing in the middle of the the um, emergency room uh, floor, and he was playing with his beard. And he said, oh, "I, hmm. I, I think, I think we're okay to use a an ambulance. I don't think I'll use the helicopter to get her to the intensive care nursery." And I thought, "Helicopter." What happened to this is no big deal. This is done every day. Like we're all good. I I just I was so um, uh, that was my first lesson that I realized much later um, that denial is a huge 
part mm. of special needs parenting. And there's and there's Good aspects point. of denial that I still that I still to this day, you know, um, uh, Hannah just turned 20 and this is her final year of high school. So after this June, um, that's it. She'll be home with me and I have no idea what life will be like. And mm. I'm just not even ready to face that yet. <laughs> I'm still in denial about that. So even after 20 years of, of uh, experience in special needs parenting, or 23, um, you know, I, uh, I, I I still deal with denial in some form or another. Uh, so long story short, Hannah was diagnosed first with seven heart defects. Oh my word! And um, and I was reeling, of course. Um, we called. Uh, the Marine Corps, you know, we called the ship that Kevin was on and it took him um, a week to get back to the States. And um, as you could probably guess, the marriage, you know, it had been hanging on by a thread. Mm. But then you add on the stress of a, a special needs child. And of course, Emily was my first child. And I always thought that things that you know that there were some some weird quirks there but she I didn't have any reference point you know what I mean um she was all I knew and so we were having some issues like with potty training like there was just no potty mm-hmm. training this kid and um and so uh there ended up being lots of of conflict between Kevin and I uh just over parenting Emily um and and then when it came to Hannah um, he totally um, just stepped back and let and and he left that all to me to handle, to the point where um, she was after uh, the initial diagnosis. Of course, then the next question is why does she have seven heart defects? Mm-hmm. And so they said, oh, oh, again, here's the denial. Um, they said we're going to have a geneticist do some testing. And I said a geneticist will do what you want, but it's not like she has Down syndrome mm-hmm. because. I didn't even know there was anything other than Down syndrome. Like I was just like, why would you involve a geneticist? It's her heart, <laughs> you right, know. Right. And um, well, come to find out, um, she has a rare genetic disorder called Wolf-Hirschhorn syndrome, and uh, and so her heart defects was just um, an an issue uh, that was within that within that syndrome. The day I got that diagnosis, Hannah was scheduled to go from our home hospital of um, Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center down to Boston Children's for her first surgery. Um, and so I so I got this diagnosis that nobody, you know, nobody's ever heard of. And there was like, you know, a quarter inch of written material on this thing um, that the doctor handed over. And then within hours, they said, okay, so um, just so you know, because uh, Hannah has this this uh, genetic disorder, you do not have to go through with this life-saving uh, heart surgery. So you can uh, you can let nature take its course, and, and that's all legal and fine. So what would you like to do? Are you kidding me? No. And so um, – and of course, I'm young. I'm yes. partum. I'm – sleep deprived i'm you know how like, old was she at this point uh less than a, about a month oh really that okay oh yeah 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 because she was a couple weeks uh so yeah she was probably about three weeks old at this point and so um so i called up kevin and said you know because if ever there was a decision 
both parents should be making. Of course. You know, <laughs> I called him up and said, uh, here's the situation. What do you want to do? Oh, and he no. said, you're the one emotionally involved. You oh. decide. So that kind of tells you how much involvement he had when it came to Hannah. And the support that you had. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very much in, in air quotes, support. Yes. <laughs> and so um, so needless to say, I decided to go through with the surgery. Um, in, all, in, in the little bit of information I found, um, it talked about how every kid diagnosed with Wolf-Hershorn, they, um, they all learned to smile and laugh. And I thought, well, okay, then clearly their lives can't be that miserable. And uh, who am I to take her uh, opportunity away to smile or laugh in her life? So I went through with the surgery. Well, um, and within uh, within a couple of months of that, uh, my marriage had dissolved. Uh, it, that, wow. that was completely over. Um, and um, I, I found a... Um, I found a support that I wasn't that I wasn't expecting. Um, oh, I don't know how to describe this without ruining different different surprises in the book. But a wonderful man named um, uh, named Daniel um, entered my life and and it just propped me up when I needed propping up and uh, lent lent a hand when I needed a hand lent a shoulder when I needed to cry. Um, he, he really made things possible for me as I jumped into single parenthood with uh, Emily and Hannah. And um, he was still a student at the time, though. So he wasn't um, he wasn't around all the time. He, of course, had classes to go to and so on and so forth. And uh, I was in the hospital with Hannah um, more days than I wasn't. And so um, so things were really um, hectic and chaotic. And uh, unfortunately, things with Hannah, she got her heart um, patched. Uh, we got the plumbing problems fixed. And so uh, cardiac-wise, she was stable. But then she started ramping up with her seizure disorder. Let, let, let's just stop here before you go on. I mm -hmm. want to back up a little bit. Sure. So seizure disorder is where we left off. But <clears throat> how old is she at this point? Um, she had her first seizure, um, I want to say at two or three months, um, she had her first seizure. But her first um, severe seizure, seizure was when she was, I want to say, about nine months. That was okay. her, her okay. first. Um, and... Um, that one, when I say severe seizure, because of course these things are very relative, mm -hmm. um, she see we were not able to successfully stop it for more than nine hours. Wow! And um, and she for a, about a year routinely had these. Now I think that that was her longest, but she would routinely have seizures between two and six hours, um, and. So we were pumping into her every anti-seizure medication known to man, um, including ones that were just tested on adults, um, wow. you know, not even ones that were okayed for children, um, and nothing was helping. But unfortunately, uh, we were getting every side effect 
you know, uh, and, and these drugs are just nasty, nasty drugs that, that have some horrible side effects. And so she would be vomiting blood and she'd have severe uh, constipation or severe diarrhea um, uh, and what looked to be like migraines and, you know, just oh. all sorts of just horrible, horrible things. And so what I was left with was devastation thinking I was asked to play God. Mm-hmm. And I screwed it up. I am not good at being God. <laughs> Can you spell the um, syndrome again? Sure. Slowly, and then describe what that is as well. Sure. Um, wolf, like the animal, W O L F dash Hershorn, H I R S C H O R N syndrome and that was so dr wolf and dr hershorn um uh put a name to this syndrome um in the 60s what it is it's a deletion on the p arm of one of the fourth chromosomes so it's it's deleted genetic information on the fourth chromosome that, that causes this and of course just like with any syndrome there is a real spectrum of um Severity, mm-hmm. you know, just like and and I'll use Down syndrome just because it's so much more widely known. Um, you know, you you have some uh, folks with Down syndrome that you would almost barely notice, right? That they, that they and then there's others that are much more severe that um, that are not um, and not independent at all that you know are completely reliant on care and so forth. And so same is is true with uh, Wolfershorn syndrome. Um, I know of some that, um, you know, I'm in a support group now and I hear all the times of uh, all the time about kids going to their prom or, you know, going to work, Mm -hmm. um, you know, going to school, that type of thing. Um, And Sarah at 20, she is nonverbal, nonambulatory. She's exclusively G-tube fed. Um, she still has some seizures. Um, she, uh, the kids with wolf hirschhorn syndrome are, are quite small. Um, so she is 50 pounds. Wow. Um, she wears, uh, and she's full grown. Um, she wears an infant size eight shoe. Um, her hands and feet are, are quite small. Um, and developmentally, I would say that she is about six to nine months old. So let's back up now to where you said you had to play God and you and you were obviously in a guilt situation. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to where we were there. Sure. Um, so uh, I go ahead. Oh, I'm just going to I was just going to refresh your memory. So you, so, yeah, you no, wonder you wondered like, if you did the wrong thing. Right. Right. And because <laughs> it's not like it's not like a um say a uh, a near drowning victim who is in a vegetative vegetative state in a in a in a hospital bed that is on a ventilator that you can choose to quote unquote pull the plug you know we weren't in that type of a situation we were in a situation where uh sarah was having i'm sorry (laughs) hannah was having (laughs) (laughs) um we were in a situation where hannah was having uh Seizures, she would have hundreds a day uh, oh, or these or these long ones that lasted hours at a time. And uh, and in between, she was she was dealing with all the side effects. And so my choices were I can take her off the drugs and just watch her seize constantly or 
I can leave her on the drugs and watch her in misery with the side effects. There was there was no there was no good answer. It was it was bad either way. There was you know, and uh, of course the only thing that I guess I could have done was I could have stopped her G-tube feeds, um, but then I would have just watched her starve. And who who could ever want to do that? You know what I mean? Like I just did you have any family support with these kind of decisions, or were you totally on your own? Uh, aside from Daniel, I was completely on my own. And uh, family, um, they've read the book since, and they, they've they mentioned, number one, how hard it was for them to read. Number two, how they just didn't know. I was no good at advocating for myself Um you know, they didn't offer to help, and I didn't even know how to ask. I was so overwhelmed that I, I, I didn't even, I didn't even know how to ask for help. And um, so, so yeah, family wasn't so much involved. So I literally went to the pediatrician and said, uh, how, "You know, how, do, how do we go forth here? It's not like, like, um, you know, I had mentioned that that Emily was." colicky as a kid and that's really hard to go through but you know that there is an end in sight right you know you know that at some point this is going to end but with the seizures the only information i had gotten was from the uh um, neurologist who said seizures beget seizures so the more you let them seize the more you know the 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 electrical circuits are are screwed up in the brain and the more seizures you're going to end up having and so there was no end in sight and i just didn't know how to move forward and i said you know can we talk euthanasia because i just can't watch her mm. suffer like this any longer and of course his answer was no we can't talk euthanasia you know um it's a one way deal if you choose to go with the surgery you know, you suffer the consequence. I mean, he didn't worry it that right, way, right. but you suffer the consequences right. no matter what. Um, and so I was pretty downtrodden at that point. Um, How did your older daughter handle that? what was going on? And were so you able to give her attention? She demanded attention because uh, she was asthmatic. Um, at the time, she's since grown out of it for the most part, um, but she was asthmatic. And then also those quirks that I was talking about, um, she was, when she was about seven, she was diagnosed with high-functioning autism. So um, she, in some ways, she was the perfect sibling for someone like Hannah mm. because um, because it didn't bother her. You know, the attention that had to be thrown Hannah's way didn't bother her like it would uh, other okay. typical kids, okay. Okay. you know, and um, but at the same time, of course, she demanded attention just because because of her own needs. So um, so there was there was that, too. And were the seizures uh, difficult, um, like for her to see or did that not affect her either? Apparently not. Um, she there was one time and I, I write about this in the book. There's one time and Hannah uh at that point, so we were in a two-bedroom apartment, and Hannah was in a, a porta crib out in the living room because we had nursing care um, that would come in um, to help late at night at that point in our journey. And so um, so we had her out there so that they wouldn't have to feel like they had to walk into our bedroom to, to deal with her. And so um, Emily approached the bed one Saturday morning, and she said, hey, mommy, 
um, Hannah's having another Caesar. Oh, okay. just like totally, yeah. uh, just, just accepted it as a way yeah, of life. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so yeah. And how were you coping with the guilt? Not well at all. So, um, as my, well, so I was diagnosed with clinical depression. Of course. And, um, and post-traumatic stress disorder I, too, you know, just because of everything going on. And, um, and so I was, uh, suicidal. And it got, things got really scary. And um, I went on Prozac, um, but then, uh, I I, I guess that's another message I should put out there to people, that there's no shame in treating clinical depression any more than there's any shame in treating diabetes. You're absolutely right. If you need medication, you need the medication. And if you want to if you want to experiment with going off the medication to see if you can get by without it, wait until your life is absolutely calm <laughs> before you make <laughs> Did that you make that mistake? You- I made that okay. mistake. <laughs> and uh and I ended up in a very, very dark place um that I barely uh barely climbed out of. So uh so that would be my next bit of inform- uh, of uh, of advice. <laughs> You know, things continued on. Um, we were medically, um, Hannah continued to be unstable, and I was I was working my way through that. Um, and Daniel finished his college degree, and um, he wanted to make <coughs> video games for a living. And video games are not something that you make in northern New Hampshire. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So he had to travel out uh, to Washington State um, to a school called DigiPen um, to uh, – uh, he's an artist, and so he, he wanted to do the artwork and video games, and uh, DigiPen has a specialized program for that. But, of course, with my kids, there's no traveling across uh-huh. the country, you know. And so it became obvious that um, <clears throat> it's not that I planned on relying on Daniel at all ever, uh, but um, – but that definitely solidified in my mind. I need to have something that I can pay the bills with, you know, um, because I'm I'm a single mom and I I need to do this. And so um, I had had an uh, an interest in nursing uh, before having kids, but never went anywhere with it. And uh, I decided that nursing was as good as uh, uh, as anything, just because. You can schedule your time, uh, you know, just about, I mean, any hour of the day you can do nursing. It's not a nine to five job. And that's what I needed. So I started school. And uh, that portion of my life is one that I would entitle True Grit. Mm, I can only imagine. My that, goodness. Those Because uh, that's, that's the time that uh, Emily was getting her diagnosis and we were dealing with IEP meetings, uh, individual educational plan meetings for school. And, um, you know, Hannah was not seizing as much, but, um, but she was still having problems with seizures. And she was also um, really struggling with a severe sleep disorder that she had. Um, we were um, documenting her sleep habits, and she and this went on for years. This went on for uh, a good three or four years, where um, she would um, she would be awake for as long as twenty eight hours 
with as few as three hours sleep, but never in more than 20 to 30 minute increments. And she was miserable. She wasn't not sleeping because she didn't need the sleep. She needed it, but she, her brain couldn't shut off. It was just, it was just no, no switch there to shut it off to the point where she was about 12 pounds (laughs) at this point. And we were giving her up to a gram of chloral hydrate uh, a night trying to get her to sleep. Now, just for reference, chloral hydrate is um, a drug that uh, doctors use for like um, outpatient procedures. You know what I mean? Um, right. You know, medical procedures mm-hmm. to knock you out. And um, 500 milligrams, half of the dose that we were giving Hannah is an adult dose. Oh. And she was to the point where she was paralyzed. She couldn't move her body. But she would uh, uh, still be crying and whimpering because she was still awake inside that paralyzed body. Oh, my goodness. And um, that was harder on probably on her, but certainly on me and, you know, the entire family. It was harder on all of us than the heart failure or the seizures. (laughs) You know, it was just it was just incredibly difficult to deal. You have to watch it. And you're helpless. You can't do anything. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah, as parents, we all, you know, we all wonder, am I doing enough? You know, there's always room for guilt as a parent. Mm -hmm. You know, you're always going to make mistakes. You're not always going to be able to do everything that you need to do. Um, And and special needs parenting is just it just it ups the ante, you know. If you have uh, the potential for guilt as a parent, then you have the potential for ultra guilt <laughs> as a special needs parent because there's no way that you can that you can do all that is required of you. You know, what did you do for Stephanie? Like, how did you help yourself? I didn't, and that was a massive mistake. Um, well, I went back on my meds, with, which was right, helped, right. You, know. you mentioned that, yes, yeah, and. Um, but, you know, I was just so driven by, um, you know, I'm the parent. This is just what I have to do, and I'm just going to have to buck up and just do it, you know. I was so driven by that that um, I lost sight of the fact that more, even more than just typical parenting, special needs parenting is a marathon. It is not a sprint. And I don't even know that you – in the beginning that I could have wrapped my head around that. But um, later in life, I had to come to terms with the fact that I had to focus on me some because I had lost Stephanie completely. Um, I I was, I was, I was just lost. All I, all I had left was Mm. mom and, and nurse actually, uh, because I did get through nursing school and um, uh, Daniel Flew back to New Hampshire after he finished his um, his schooling in Washington. Uh, he was working for Nintendo at the time, mm-hmm. and he, he proposed, and we married. And as soon as my nursing school was uh, complete, I took the plunge and uh, moved to Washington. And I say take, took the plunge because, um, of course, when you have special needs kids, mm-hmm. you're reliant on um, services provided by the states. That's right. And uh, Hannah and and uh, to a large extent, and then Emily to a smaller extent, they were both set up with their services in New Hampshire. But there are no guaranteed services in different states, and so you know you can't just move willy nilly to whatever state 
you fancy. Um, so I flew out to Washington before we moved out there to find out, you know, I said, look, these are the services that Hannah gets right now. Are these the services that I can um, expect when we get out there? And they said, yes, go ahead and make the move. So I did. And I called them up and I said, okay, where do I sign up for these services? And they said, oh, oh no. Last month we were audited by the feds and um, our entire program is frozen. And oh. so there is no, um, they said we can put you on a wait list, but to be honest with you, it's a wish list because there's no hope of her getting any services, at least until she's an adult. Oh. At the time, we had been getting up to 72 hours a week of home nursing care in New Hampshire. Oh. And um, they said, um, they said, well, she wouldn't have qualified for home nursing care anyway because she doesn't have a tracheotomy. Uh, she's not ventilated. Um, but she, um, she could have gotten um, uh, personal care hours. Uh, and so they said, you know what? We, we understand that this is a shock for you. So we're going to give you 40 hours of emergency respite hours. Uh, um, and, uh, and they gave me the names of a couple agencies. And so I, is that 40 hours total or 40 hours a 40 week? 40 hours total. Oh my goodness. So I, it, so I <laughs> called them up just before I called the agency and I said, before I talked to the agency, just clarify for me. Um, I said, when we would get a new nurse back in New Hampshire, I would devote a full eight hour shift to orientation. You know, what her G-tube feeding schedule is, what her seizure protocol is, you know, um, what different looks on her face mean. Cause of course she's, she's, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, and I said, but I only have 40 hours. I, I, I don't want to quote unquote waste a full eight of those hours on this. How do, how do we do this? And they said, Oh, a personal care attendant can't, can't do G-tube feeds. That's a nursing skill. And I said, but you said that she didn't qualify for nursing because she's not on a ventilator. And they said, yeah, that's a real hole in our system. Oh, my goodness. But you'll lose the 40 hours if, you, if, if, if it's found out that you're asking them to do a G-tube feed. And I said, but she is – she gets her feedings every two hours. I can't even make it to the grocery store and back without, you know, without her missing a feeding. <laughs> and they said, well, you know. You're just going to have to find a way to make it work. <laughs> have a nice day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, so that was that was uh, an interesting part of our journey too. And so, um, and you know, I had my nursing school uh, loans that needed to be paid, and uh, Kev, uh, uh, Daniel had his loans from his schooling that needed to be paid. So I had to work, um, but we. You know, we needed someone home all the time with Hannah. So um, he, of course, worked days. And then I got my nursing uh, license and um, I worked the night shift, 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. at Children's Hospital. And when did Uh, you sleep? (laughs) Oh, you're so funny. (laughs) I was just um, I was well trained to not sleep just with all those years of of Hannah not ever sleeping uh, it was uh, that was one blessing when we got out here we finally found a quote-unquote bedtime cocktail um, a, you know a, a, mm-hmm. a medications that worked that um, her sleep wasn't perfect but it was so much so much better it was you know um, livable uh, and so so that was a, a, a huge huge help and then, uh, and also miraculously, uh, she just stopped seizing. She was seizure-free and off all seizure meds for a good, 
oh, I, I want to say six or eight years at least. How old was she at this point when this happened? So um, she was born in 1995. We moved out to Washington in 2001. And by 2002, she had she didn't have any more seizures okay. and we had taken her off the meds. And so she didn't have another seizure until um, until she was in high school. So that was just a couple of years ago. And, uh, and, and she's, and generally speaking, the seizures that she's had lately have been, um, quite mild and, uh, um, she only had one that was, um, that was pretty severe. That was, uh, about a year ago, um, at actually at the beginning of January last year. Um, and that was an unwelcome blast from the past dealing, dealing with that. But, um, but anyway, now you mentioned high school. Now, how does she attend high school? So she's in what they call a medically fragile room. Um, so she doesn't, of course, she doesn't attend any of the classes or anything like that. Um, the only um, thing that she gets uh, at school is occupational, physical and speech therapies. And okay. so, um, yeah, so she, it's just, a, it's a room and there's a couple other students like her. We, we're, we're in a very large um, school district. So there's a couple other kids in the district that are similar to Sarah in that they, um, you know, they're, they're medically fragile as well. And so they share the classroom with her. So she's kind of, it's just, um, it, it's, it's kind of separate from high school, but it's in the high school. So, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, um, but also, um, after we moved out here, uh, Daniel and I had uh, another child. We had uh, we had my son, and he was born in 2003. <clears throat> James, he's now 12. He's um, just about to turn 13. And um, oh, he was a dream as an infant. It was just <laughs> oh, I was like, oh, this is why people. Have- <laughs> Than one kid. This okay. I could do this. Oh. He was wonderful, but then toddlerhood hit, and I couldn't believe it. I was just like, "What is going on?" He was. It was insanity. You know, I thought that I had proven myself to be a patient woman mm-hmm. dealing with um, with Emily's uh, high functioning autism, and she also has some uh, development, uh, some some cognitive delays. So she is now 23, but emotionally uh, and responsibility wise, she's much more of about a 14 year old. In a lot of ways. And so she is not able to live independently. Um, she today, as a matter of fact, she's volunteering at a, a farm. She's she's a horse nut. And she on Thursdays, she volunteers at a farm nearby uh, where she takes care of some animals. Um, but uh, but she won't be able to support herself mm-hmm. uh, for various reasons. Um, and so, you know, with the with the issues that arose with that and then all of Hannah's uh, medical issues, I really thought, OK, you know, I, I'm a patient woman. I can deal with stuff. But with what James was coming at me with, I just I just couldn't handle it. He um, you know, he was one of those kids that you said, don't touch the stove and he would have to touch the stove, you know, Uh, or you'd go outside and, um, you'd turn, uh, right for a second and he was running left to run into a road. Um, you know, it was just, it was just craziness. And so I took him in for his four year well child checkup. Now I had concerns because of course he seemed pretty ADHD, (laughs) but how does a parent of two special needs kids go to the doctor and say, hey, 
there's something going on with my third kid <laughs> without totally looking like I have Munchausen syndrome. You know, I was just like, I can't say anything about this. But I took oh. him in for his four year uh, checkup. And um, and there were no shots that year or anything like that. I told uh, I, I told James, you know, the doctor's just going to listen to your heart. He's going to look in your ears and your eyes. And um, the doctor just put the stethoscope on his chest. And James threw such a fit that nurses came in thinking that they had to hold someone down for immunizations. So the doctor took a step back and he said, what is this? And I said, I'm sorry, this is my every day. And he said, oh, there's something clearly going oh, on. Oh my goodness! To get him evaluated, so um, I took him to the um, the child psychologist or psychiatrist that I had been going to every Tuesday since 2001 uh, for for uh, Emily because Emily, when we um, around the time we moved out here, she had some suicidal ideations and stuff. That's another aspect of special needs parenting. Um, you know, sometimes uh, obviously. Um, when a kid is aware enough to know that they're different from everyone else, that can cause some emotional strife. And so so we were addressing that. So um, so this doctor knew James from, you know, before he was conceived. And I took him in and I said, you don't need to do a formal evaluation or anything. Just just try to play an age appropriate game with him or try to play something like shoots and ladders, you know. Mm-hmm. Something like that. And he came out and he said, Oh, Stephanie, I'm so sorry. I know what you have on your plate, but yeah, this is definitely yeah. ADHD. And um, and then with shortly thereafter, we realized that he was also severely dyslexic, to the point where his independently, his kindergarten teacher and his first grade teacher both described him as the most dyslexic student they had ever met in their entire careers. Oh. And um, words you wanted to hear. <laughs> I know. I'm like, I don't want to impress anybody like this, you know, <laughs> and and it was it was fascinating. Each of these kids with, you know, because clearly they're very different from typical, typical kids. Mm-hmm. And the differences are fascinating. That doesn't make them any less difficult, but it was fascinating. He would it took us a couple of years just to teach him to start writing in the upper left hand corner on the front of of a piece of paper. Um, the, his first grade teacher said, I had him do a writing assignment and he had the paper upside down and backwards hmm. and he was writing from the bottom, bottom right-hand corner and he was writing upside down so that when I walked to his desk, it was like he was writing it for me because it was all forward to my eyes. Oh she my. said, I don't even know how you can do that. Yes. You know? So um, clearly... Uh, that took some therapy, you know, some uh, occupational therapy and some tutoring and some hard work and some hair pulling and <laughs> some tears. Um, but uh, boy, he is so much improved. And, you know, in some ways, when when you have a diagnosis like ADHD, dyslexia, you know, you, you hear those all the time. Right. Uh, and And I don't think that they get the quote unquote respect that they deserve. Um, someone looks at Hannah and uh, they know immediate, immediately, obviously, that something's, something's right. wrong, right. you know, and they expect nothing from her, you know, um, because you look at her and you, you mm-hmm. just can't expect anything. And so anything she does is just wonderful and great. You look at Emily or at, at James 
and you think, um, okay, I'm looking at normal. I expect normal. And they're going to let you down every time because oh. they can't give you normal. And it's hard for, and it's even hard for me to remember at times, you know, I'll ask things of Emily that, uh, and then I'm like, oh yeah, no, she couldn't handle that. What was I thinking asking her to do that, you know, but it's just so, it's such um, false advertising, (laughs) you know, with their normal little faces looking at you. Right. And, um, and so even with, uh, you know, I was in a, a parent support group one time and, uh, a mother came to me and she said, you are so lucky that your daughter's in a wheelchair. And I said, what? And she said, well, um, and this was actually before Emily got her diagnosis. She said, my daughter is autistic. And, um, and so people, um, you know, expect so much more from her and, and have so much less uh, patience and understanding. And over the years with Emily, I completely understood what she meant by that. And, uh, please excuse the way that this might sound coming out, but I've always thought that that Emily would be well served if she were blind, deaf, or in a wheelchair, because people would then expect from her what she can actually give. Right. You know what I mean? I totally understand. And um, and with James, um, at least with Emily, when I say. Uh, when people look at me kind of questioningly, uh, you know, with with something that that Emily has done, I can say, well, you know, she's autistic and and developmentally delayed, and they, oh, oh, okay. But, but you hate but, to have to always say that too. Yeah, yeah, you do. Um, but uh, but at least then you usually get some sort of oh, okay, you know, mm. some respect for what's going on. But with ADHD. Uh, when I st- even the nurses, because at this point I was still nursing when I got his diagnosis, I would talk to fellow nurses about what was going on and they'd say, well, boys are going to be boys. You know, mm-hmm. it's just there's just no respect for what is actually entailed with, um, you know, it is not just a little hyperactivity. There's just so many, uh, there's um, sensory integration disorders. There's just there's so many things going on with it. That it just doesn't get any respect. <laughs> um, so, so it's taken a lot of work, and in some ways, it's been more challenging than Emily or Hannah. Because with Emily and Hannah, uh, well, Hannah was obvious from the beginning, but with even with Emily, I knew from a pretty early age that she was probably not ever going to be self-sufficient, mm. and um, and so my goal with her was happiness. If she could have, you know, Good. as many happy days as possible, that was great. With with James, the stakes are higher because he has the potential to have um, a very productive and normal life, but um, but he's in a very big risk group. You know, um, mm-hmm. kids with ADHD, they you know they drop out of school, they get they go on drugs, they um, they end up in in prison. That you know, just the the risk group is is huge. And how old is he now? He's uh, just about to turn 13. Okay. And so I feel an incredible sense of pressure to make sure mm. that I'm making every step right, you know, to to, to protect to, him. Yes, yes, and to, to guide him as well as I can. And, um, now, and then – oh, go ahead. You didn't stop with three, though, did you? No, no. So uh, when I w- took him for that four-year well-child checkup mm-hmm. – I had a newborn with me, Madeline. <laughs> <laughs> and for years, Madeline, uh, and 
Madeline was a pill when she was an infant. I don't know what made her think that she just she she like demanded to be held constantly. And I'm like, <laughs> you do realize you have three other siblings. You know, she was she was a difficult infant. But then toddlerhood hit, and she was a dream. She it was wonderful. And for years, <laughs> I um I described her as finally my typical kid, and um and everything was great. Um she is she is nine now. Last year, uh she was in third grade. And within um, the first week or two of school, um, the teacher had concerns that she was um, she was falling behind. She wasn't um, she didn't she wasn't able to pay attention. And, you know, there were a lot of similarities between Madeline and James, but um, but they're siblings. So, you know, what is just them having the same you know, DNA and what is, what is a diagnosis, you know, and I, and I kept telling myself, well, this is just her, um, just being her, but, um, but it, it became obvious that it was intruding upon her life. And, um, oh, and I excuse it, please excuse this language, but I'm, my language is going to be colorful in just a minute. Um, so I had the letter from the teacher. Uh, she was in piano lessons at the time, and she just couldn't pay attention in piano at all. She was in gymnastics, and she was constantly being called out by the gym, uh, the you know gym coach uh, to to pay attention and stuff. So I took all of this to the um, to our trusty uh, family um, child psychiatrist, and I said, "Hey, all of these people have this concern about about Maddie," and he said. Oh, now we have to do something about it. <laughs> and so that was probably one of the hardest diagnoses to get because, darn it, <laughs> she yes. was my normal one. <laughs> and to accept, not to get, but to accept. And, um, and you know, James had, had responded very, very well to medication, but of course we didn't just rely on medication. He needed a lot of other help too. Um, and so, you know, we thought, well, do we, do we try medication for Hannah? And I hated the thought of having four kids on drugs, but, um, but again, you shouldn't be ashamed of having to treat something. If you have something, you just treat it. And so, um, we tried the ADHD medication and she made a 180 degree turnaround. She had been crying, um, you know, when she came home from school saying, um, I can never give people what they want. I'm trying my hardest, but it's never enough for people. And, uh, and the nice thing about ADHD medication is, you know, within the first hour of the first day, whether this is going to work for that kid or not. So immediately she, uh, that, that first week of school on meds, she came home and she was so proud of herself, so proud. And she is just um, excelling in school, excelling with gymnastics, um, doing beautifully on piano. Um, so happy. Uh, it, it's, it's definitely been the right answer for her. So there you have it. <laughs> I was just going to say, I don't know how much more we can handle. <laughs> like how in the world you did it. So that's, I want to switch gears here a little bit. Now we've got the story and such a story as it is, and it is an emotional one. And I know that the, because you have four children with four four very different types of scenarios, you have very much to share with individuals who 
go through things like this, mm-hmm. you know, on a singular basis, not not for different children. Mm-hmm. So that alone uh, um, would be my first question. How does anyone meet these kind of challenges? What coping skills do you have? I know we touched a little bit about this when you said, you know, take the meds, don't be ashamed. Mm-hmm. But there has to be a lot more going on in your psyche. Sure. You know, what? how do you get up in the morning knowing what's ahead and put one foot in front of the other? How do you... Like this is a multi-folded question, but how do you have the patience to endure? How do you not feel guilty? How do you not have a pity party? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, just talk to us a little bit about that. Well, you do feel guilt and you do have pity parties sometimes. Uh I don't think that either of those things can be helped. And so I guess part of it would be acceptance, that that's just part of the life. And that's just part of it. Um, but the the only thing that I can that I can recommend is to take it moment by moment. To not to not focus. Uh, you know, you said, how do you get out of bed knowing what you're facing? Don't face it all. Just focus on getting out of bed. You know, um, just just focus on today. And if today is too much, just focus on this hour, this moment mm-hmm. right now, um, because Stressing yourself out about the unknown that's coming, um, it's, it's not going to do you any good. It's not going to do the children any good. And so so just focus on the now. You had to learn patience. Mm-hmm. And you had to learn what you just shared. That does not come easily. It comes with a price. Mm-hmm. And what did your children teach you besides this? What have you learned from them? Oh, um. Hannah has taught me strength. Um, she has so much pluck, <laughs> um, so much grit. I mean, she, she's just taught me how to how to strong and persevere. Um, I'm amazed by her. You wouldn't, you, you know, people people look at at special needs uh, individuals, and uh, I know for me, before my kids, I would look at them and probably have some pity, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, Certainly some discomfort because they're different and, oh gosh, that's uncomfortable, mm-hmm. um, but some pity. But um, now I, I have a whole different uh, outlook because th- those kids are, uh, and, and, and grown-ups too, are amazing in their strength, what they've had to endure, what they've Aww. had to persevere through. Um, it's it just, it just boggles Very my mind. Very good point. Um, with the other three – and and actually, ADHD is not all that dissimilar from high functioning autism. There's 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 some carryover there, and so um, so some of the skills that I had learned with Emily, I was able to to continue on with um, with James and, and Madeline. Um, but uh, I think the biggest lesson that they taught me, the three of them, is to have faith in your child. And what I mean by that is, um, for instance, with ADHD, a lot of times those kids get a reputation for being lazy. Oh, he's just being lazy. That's why he's not doing his homework. And um, 
and so you can throw on some really negative adjectives mm-hmm. for these kids. And uh, and some people even said that about Emily. Oh, she's she's just she she just wants attention. That's why she still wets her pants when she's twelve. Yeah, I'm sure that's the attention she's really craving. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have to have faith that in in your kid that they are not these negative words. That there's something going on that is stopping James from doing his homework or or that's creating the problem that, you know, Emily is wetting her pants and um, and to investigate from there, not to just accept the oh, he's just being lazy. Uh, yeah, the <laughs> That's what I would have to say. Okay. About it. Does that make sense? <laughs> yes, yeah. it does. Absolutely. But, um, yeah. Just um, yeah. Just to to have to have faith that uh, that there's a a reason these things are going on and that the things can be addressed. You know, like uh, with the laziness with homework. Um, well, part of it for for uh, James anyway was that. Um, when are they asked to do homework at night? Well, by then, all of their medication mm. is gone. It's out of their system. So can he focus? No. And so when he was younger, when this was more of a, a challenge for him, um, I requested that he get packets of homework for over the weekend. Then he could devote his Saturday and Sunday when he's fully medicated mm. to to really focus in on what he's doing. Um, and, um, you know, with... Uh, the dyslexia that played um i always you know when you think dyslexia you think oh you know they switch their e's mm-hmm, the, right. you know that type of thing right. um no it is it is fully encompassing in, in every area of the brain and so it um things like categorizing um and um putting things in order like learning the months of the year or the days of the week that's a challenge um, Mm. because there's an order to it Um, and doing things like long division that's incredibly challenging because everything has to line up in the right columns you know neatness counts and that's a real challenge for him and so so he's not being lazy he's just not um not incredibly enthused about doing things that are even more challenging than it is for the typical population. And he just needs a little more assistance with that. Now, what's the best? First of all, have you used what you have learned to help others? And if so, in what capacity? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I wrote my, uh, my book, I I'd never meant to publish a book. Uh, I never meant to write a book. Um, I was writing therapeutically as, as I, I think that Hannah was probably about a year old when I started writing and I was just writing things down um, therapeutically. It just, it just helped me out. Mm-hmm. But then nurses and therapists read what I wrote and they said, Oh, you know, Stephanie, I'm dealing with another mother right now that I know is feeling this way. And she would really benefit from reading something like this um, because she doesn't feel comfortable talking about it because she's ashamed or, Mm. you know, Um, and that's something I should talk about too. You know, um, uh, Hannah is incontinent. Uh, She's in diapers, has been her whole life. So that means for 23 years now, I've been changing diapers. I'm sick of changing diapers. I can't stand it. But, what kind of a person does it make me look like 
when I moan and complain about having to change my kids' diapers. You know, obviously she can't help it, but uh, but it's going to be natural <laughs> to complain about changing diapers for 23 freaking years. <laughs> you know. And yes, so, you're right. If it was, if you didn't complain about it, there would be something wrong with you. Oh, I'm yeah. enjoying this. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is a blessing in my life. <laughs> yeah. That's that's the typical scenario that you often hear, don't worry, be happy, which really grates me the wrong way because it does you know, just because you're not complaining about it doesn't mean it's not your real reality. Right. And your right. reality is is what it is. Yeah. And you're allowed to have a pity party, you're allowed to say, you know, why me once in a while, but that's not where you live. Right. And right. it is very obvious in listening to your story that you don't live well, first of all, you're not living in denial anymore. Yeah. <laughs> but you also part. don't live in this victim or martyr mode, which someone in your position would certainly be entitled to be there. And so I know my listeners and I applaud you. You have an incredible attitude. You have not lost your sense of humor. <laughs> you have not I have, lost I have Daniel to thank for that. He, and he that was one of about, my next yeah. questions actually is is how has he coped through all this? I know he's a support and everything, but is there anything else you want to share about that? Oh, there's so much I want to share. Um he, you know, people people say to me sometimes, "Wow, you're amazing. How do you do this?" And I don't deserve that. Um I'm a mom and you know, this is what you do as a mom. Uh, you know, life is a box of chocolates. You don't know what you're going to get. But when you get it, well, that's what you're stuck with. That You know, that's what you just you just do. Because what, you know, uh, I mean, I guess there is alternatives and um, there are kids that, that get taken out of the home or whatever. But, but anyway, I just I feel like, well, this is just my duty. But he chose to take this on. Right. He That's what I was, was thinking. Yes. On. Yes. And, you know, things were at their craziest when he walked into my life. And uh, and yet he never skipped a beat. He and, and even when, you know, when he came out to Washington before me, um, I was convinced that 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 was it for us, that um, because, you know, mm-hmm. I would never be able to move with the girls. And um, and he said, well, that's just insanity. We will make it work because uh, because we love each other, and this is just going to happen. This is just this is meant to be. And uh, he he had faith in it that I that I had to catch up on, you know. Um, but yeah, he is a, a crazy funny guy, and uh, and he teaches me every day that uh, that there's always something to laugh about. And even after you know after the book, um, I I have an epilogue on on my um, website. But then even and, and that covers the 10 years um, after uh, after we moved out to Washington, where uh, James and Maddie were born. Um, but then uh, in June, I started writing a monthly blog and uh, my last blog post is all about that. It's just about how he has really he just reminds me on a daily basis uh, that there's always something uh, to find to find your smile with, you know, just to remind you. Um, even if today is a bad day, uh, it just, it will make you appreciate the good day that you have either tomorrow or a week from now, all the better, because, you know, there's, there's just, there's something good every day. And as you mentioned, we don't choose our destiny and we don't choose what happens to us, but we do choose our attitude. Mm-hmm. And I, I interview a lot of people in situations 
you know, that are that a lot of people would never be able to cope with. At least they don't think they could until they're in the middle of it. Mm -hmm. And that's when you get your strength is taking one step at a time, putting one step in front of each other, keeping hope in front of you that things will improve. I will get through this. I will make it. We will make it together. And looking at the good in every situation, all these things are attitude and all these things you definitely have incorporated into your life. And so, I again, I do applaud you. And we don't have a lot of time, but let's uh, let's just maybe touch base on your book. Uh, when I do promote this interview, your uh, your link to your website, all your contact information, um, including this interview, will be there, and also your book. And so we will definitely be promoting this. Is there anything else that you want to say as a call to action to the audience? Um, let's see. Well, I, I'd like to mention that on the uh, the book's website that there is um, an Ask the Author forum and uh and i put it there just to start conversations you know if there are other special needs families out there that uh, for instance um a mom of a another child with wolf hirshhorn syndrome uh it's a little uh, boy who's a toddler now um she contacted me last winter and said you know i just happened upon your book and um she said until i read that I didn't think anyone could possibly understand how oh. where I was or how I'm feeling. Um, and she said, I just went out and bought six more copies to hand out to my family because I'm hoping that if they can um, under get to uh-huh. know and understand you, that they'll know and understand me better. And uh, and so you know, be and and so she and I have have of course um, developed quite a, a nice dialogue. Uh, she's going through some rough times with seizures and and so on and so forth. And uh, so anytime any anyone would like to uh, uh, comment on the website or or any okay. of the blogs, yeah. And you definitely will be in contact, absolutely. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you know, helping one another is is what life is all about, right? And you've walked down this road and <laughs> it makes you feel good that you can do that, doesn't it? Yes. I've been there. I know what you're talking about. Yes, listen to me. I can give you some encouragement. So mm-hmm. that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Well, Stephanie, mm-hmm. you're amazing. Oh. And you have an amazing man. I think that, as you said, you hit the nail on the head when you said he chose this. Mm-hmm. And tell him how proud <laughs> I sure will. <laughs> we are of that because yeah. it uh, it takes a big man to be able to do that. And what we'll need to do in maybe six months to a year is let's do this again. Let's recap. Let's see where things are and what else you have to share because this is a huge story. It and is. there are so many people out there with special needs children that will benefit. Sure. So I thank you, Stephanie, and like I said, we will have all your contact information, et cetera, on the website when we're up and ready to go, and your book, With Angel's Wings. Now, that is a novel, but it is based on your true experience, right? The story is 100% true. The only thing that's changed is the names. So 
I'm Laura in the book. Okay. And uh, you might have throughout the interview um, heard me um, stumble a few times naming my kids. Right. <laughs> I'm using some that names, not theirs. <laughs> Who is that again? <laughs> yeah. It's bad to have memory. Right. Sometimes, right? <laughs> anyway, thank you so much, Stephanie. And thank you, listeners. And um, let's support Stephanie. And we will be looking forward to a good report. Thank you. Thank you, Carol. Thank you for listening to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. Did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to? Quitting was never an option. Carol loves your comments and will respond to each one. So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.